Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the no BS marketing podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn the f*** up. Think about starting with the thing that is smallest, tightest, and most niche. So the thing that you can really go deeply, become an expert in, resonate with at a very, very deep level with a smaller audience. As you grow your audience and you grow your expertise and authority inside of that small circle, I would think about how can you sort of put around that circle larger and larger circles that capture more and more of your interests. If you can start small, get known really, really, really well for something in particular, grow an audience of 100,000 followers or fans, it's much easier to start going a little bit wider. What's up? What's up, everybody? Excited for this. I can't wait for this session today. Excited for this session with the content legend, Justin Walsh. This session, we're going to talk about content systems. Justin is a, a pro at this. He's nailed it for LinkedIn. He's nailed it for Twitter. He has some cool things coming up. So I want to introduce Justin to the stage right now. So welcome to Justin Welsh. Good to be here. How are you, Daniel? Justin, I just wanted to get a, for most people who are in this session are going to know who you are, but for everybody who doesn't know you, tell them a little about your backstory and how did you get into this content creation game? First of all, thanks for having me, man. Good, good to see you again. So my name is Justin Welsh. I don't have a real business name or anything. It's just Justin D. Welsh, LLC. And I basically am building a diversified portfolio of one-person businesses. And my goal is to build those businesses toward $5 million in recurring. My past is that I am a former uh, startup executive. I was a VP of sales and chief revenue officer at a company called Patient Pop in Los Angeles. Before that, I was a very early hire and part of the director team at a company called ZocDoc in New York City. Uh, so I was in tech for 10 years, 2009 to 2019. What kind of led me to this creator space is in late 2018, when I was chief revenue officer at PatientPop, I had built the business from its first dollar in revenue up to about 51 million, but was just really burning, like just burning out, uh, you know, burning the candle at both ends for the most part really stressed out and uh, ended up having a pretty severe panic attack in late 2018. And that was sort of the impetus for uh, deciding to walk away from my job. So it took about eight months, but I walked away from my job, knew I needed to do something other than, you know, build SaaS companies for a while. So started consulting and advising, wrote on LinkedIn every day. And over the last three and a half to four years, that has just slowly transitioned into social media entrepreneurship, internet entrepreneurship, and I no longer am even, I wouldn't consider myself to even be a part of the SaaS or technology world anymore. Now I just focus 100% on the creator, uh, you know, environment. How did you figure out that creating content was a thing for you? And then how did you figure out, because I know even from your patient pop days and all your days, you've just been a huge system guy and systematized everything. Mm -hmm. So how did you get into creating the system that you're doing now? And then let's go high level what the system is and then we'll break it down into parts. Yeah. I started writing on LinkedIn daily in October of 18. So just crossed four years. I simply like had a hypothesis. The whole hypothesis was that if I was going to support my business, like make a living, 
that I was going to have to find customers somehow and get attention for my business. And so I thought that content creation was a really good way to do it. Folks were on Twitter kind of creating content, but not a lot of people at that point in time were on LinkedIn. I got pretty lucky. I like came onto LinkedIn and started writing before the platform was really at its like creator maturity level that it is today. And so I was an early entrant in that space. So that, that helped. I think once I wrote sort of my first piece of content that crossed a million impressions and brought a bunch of customers my way, once I hit that sort of milestone, which was in May of 2019, I started to realize like, hey, this has got some serious firepower behind it. What got me into systems was a function of just being forced. So I don't have any employees. I don't have a ghostwriter. I don't have, nobody works for me. I have a virtual assistant. That's it. Who handles nothing but customer service and customer support tickets, no content creation, nothing. So again, it's a function of being forced. I have to do everything for the business. And so in order to do everything effectively for the business, you have to have systems. You know, I produce a newsletter every week. I produce 12 pieces of LinkedIn content, 12 tweets, a Twitter thread. I do events like this. So if I didn't have a system for putting this all together, it just, it wouldn't happen. And I would find myself probably in the same boat I was at Patient Pop where I was burning out or dying of overwork. It's funny because I think that's, especially the what you've created with all these pieces of real estate that you're creating content on, you have to have a system to be able to create content and create it at scale. Because also we can go into like how you think about that, but what is your process like from top to bottom? So when it's, if I'm coming and starting to create content online as a solo person or as just a creator or even as a business, a small business, how do you think about where do I even start creating this system to create content? There's no right system. The one thing I always tell people is just because my system works a certain way, doesn't mean that it should be the same system that everyone else uses. I think it's a good one, but it doesn't maybe meet everyone's experience criteria or whatever. So if I were just getting started, the first thing that I would do is make a system out of simply producing one piece of content each day. That's the most important thing when you're getting started is actually starting. Most people read a lot, study a lot, research a lot, and it's all just procrastination dressed up as action. And they never actually get started with things that are meaningful to content creation. So the easiest system to create content in the beginning is set aside 30 minutes on your calendar every day for content creation. That's the simplest system in the world, right? And as that system grows and changes, it will eventually become something like mine. So it starts with carving out 30 minutes in the day to say, okay, I'm going to carve out 30 minutes for content. The first time you hit that 30 minute block, you will see friction. You will like open up the 30 minute block and you'll, you'll say, okay, um, what do I write today? Like, what should I say? So you think, okay, how next time when I hit this 30 minute block, do I actually have something to say? So it's like, okay, well, maybe some prompting questions would be helpful. So like, did I learn anything today? Did I help someone with something today? What are some questions people ask me? So pretty soon that goes into a 30 minute block, right? And every time you hit that block, you have less friction than you did the last time. And then pretty soon you'll hit that block. You'll answer those questions, but you'll struggle to get it into an appropriate format, style, structure, the way that the, the content comes across on LinkedIn or Twitter. And so the next thing you might do is install some templates, some format templates, some listicle templates, whatever it is that you, you need to remove friction. And so system creation is an iterative process. It starts very simply. And every time that you hit that block and new friction appears, 
you introduce something new to remove that friction so that over time your system grows. And by the time you've done it for like four years, like I have, you hit the block of time and it's just like automated. You go through the same prompts, the same everything to create the same content and it gets faster, better, easier over time. So that's how I think about getting started. Every point in that content creation is developing a new habit so you can get rid of an old habit. Like you have to make sure that that habit works first. Then once you've figured out that habit, you systematize it and then you go into building the next building block and the next building block. The first thing you need to do is develop the habit of just creating every day. Otherwise, you keep, the system's not going to work because you're not going to create every day. You have this like pillar system of three blocks if you think about it. how do you think about when someone's thinking about how can i make it easier to create content for myself how do i think about that to create content easily there are two different ways so like i think of it as like probably not a good example but like a freeway like it can flow both ways for example ideation is the starting point for all content so before you can write content whether it's a LinkedIn post or a tweet or a thread or a newsletter or an article or a blog, whatever, right? You have to have an idea. And so ideation has to be part of your calendar. And so the first part of any like really healthy system is simply 15 to 30 minutes a day to brain dump ideas. doesn't matter how stupid they are, or good they are, just throw them on paper, right? Like get those ideas onto a piece of paper. I use Notion. So I have a running Notion block where I can jump into my Notion block and see 150 plus ideas at any time. So ideation to me is really critical. I think the next thing that you can do can go one of two different ways. So with ideation, you can either create short form content, short form being a LinkedIn post, a tweet, thread, something like that. Um, you can create that based on the idea that you have selected that day, right? So let me give you an example. So um, you might say, all right, today's idea is the four fastest ways to grow a YouTube channel. Okay, cool. Well, now that I've selected that idea, I can start turning that into short form content. So a piece of short form content might be a story about somebody who's grown their YouTube channel. It might be an observation about five YouTube channels that you watch on a regular basis that you've noticed they all have in common. It might be eight tools that the top LinkedIn or top YouTube uh, channels use. It might be how you think about YouTube today versus how you think YouTube creators are gonna be creating in 2027. It could be the most uncommon YouTube channels that you've seen and why they're growing fast. There's just a million ways to take one idea and turn it into several pieces of short form content. Once you produce that content, what you have are sort of these little tests that are going out into the field and proving themselves to be worthy or not worthy. So let's say you kick all five or six pieces of that content out onto LinkedIn, Twitter, like some of it's going to bomb and some of it's going to resonate very deeply. And so the one that resonates very deeply, maybe you extend that. You turn that into a newsletter, you turn that into a blog or an article or a guide or a teardown, whatever, right? I generally go the opposite way. So I ideate, I think of an idea and I write a newsletter about it. Once I've written the newsletter, I chop my newsletter into five to seven pieces of content. And by doing that, I always have a pillar piece of content, the newsletter. And then I have sort of these outlying piece of content that all relate to that. So I can call people back to the newsletter using the content. I'd love to dive deeper, but I think the one thing that I love that you're saying is everything you do is to make things easier for the process. So one, 
pillar piece of content you create once and you can chop that up and replicate it on multiple platforms and then pillar idea which is one idea or a couple ideas that you can anchor your content off so i don't have to go and think about a hundred different ideas i could take that one idea and spread it out and say it in different ways and in different type forms and different types of content and different formats so i think that's the key to crushing is it and gary v's done this for a while you're doing it very well if you go just watch justin how he does it it's actually brilliant if you think if you see but it's actually i don't want to undermine but it's a simple process because he just writes this and now he has a pillar content for twitter that's a thread he has pillar content for linkedin that's a thread but it all anchors back to his newsletter which is news that are getting more valuable super fans at the end of the day. But I want to go into this. Sure. Like, the, how you think about it. It's a nine step process, sometimes 10 now, but I haven't memorized. So I'll kind of walk through it. So two times a week on my calendar, I have 30 minutes out to ideate, which is a fancy word for thinking of ideas. Right. So um, I'll go and I'll do a bunch of different things when I'm ideating. So one might be going to some of my favorite YouTube creators channels selecting videos and sorting from most popular to least popular. When you see those videos that are popular, you can assume that that is a topic that is interesting to a lot of people. So that just kind of prompts your brain into thinking. I subscribe to a ton of curated newsletters. So I'll open up my mailbox. I'll look at the curated newsletters that I get and I'll just read through and say like, oh, uh, this person wrote an article on how to get your first 5,000 Twitter followers. I'm not going to copy how they did it, but I'm going to give my own spin on if I were trying to get my first 5,000 Twitter followers. So there's an idea, I'll drop it in the idea bank. And so I'll just carve out that time to ideate. And my goal is to create anywhere from six to 10 unique ideas each week when I only need one. So I constantly have a, a growing repository. Once I've chosen an idea and I choose my idea on Monday morning, and once I've chosen that, I decide I'm going to turn that idea into a newsletter. So for example, five copywriting formulas for LinkedIn. Let's say that that was a newsletter issue that I wanted to, to create. So after selecting that, I went to start creating that and I realized it might be helpful if I had done some additional research from around the web to see how other creators think about it, how other people have uh, tweeted about it, if there's any contrarian takes, people I disagree with, agree with, whatever it might be. And so step two became research. So once I've selected my topic, I'll go out and do some research, use Google, use advanced Twitter search, search on LinkedIn and find a quote, an article, a book, a tweet, a post that either backs up what I'm saying or adds some context to what I'm about to say. So it's step one, ideate, step two, research. Step three is I put it into a newsletter. The problem with writing a newsletter is it's hard. <laughs> so most people start and then don't continue. So the way that I've eliminating that possibility is I use templates. So my newsletter every single week gets pushed through the same template. I introduce a problem. I introduce why it's important. I introduce how most people try and solve the problem. I tell people why, why I think that's wrong. And then I introduce how I would solve the problem. That is my newsletter to a T nearly every single week. And so it becomes very easy for me to write it. Once I've written the newsletter, step four is editing. And editing is a series of questions that I go through. 
Is this clear and concise? Do I deliver on the promise of the headline? Did I link to everything appropriately? Do I use illustrations? Is it easy to read? Is it any run-on sentences that ramble? I just go through these different sort of questions to, to edit. And then out of the editing process comes a fully baked newsletter. Once I have a fully baked newsletter, that's where content creation gets really easy because now you have a core idea. So this core idea can be five LinkedIn copywriting tips like we talked about earlier. Okay, well, let's turn this into a story. So a story about LinkedIn copywriting tips. Let's turn this into an observation. My observations about great LinkedIn copywriters. Let's turn this into a listicle. Top eight LinkedIn copywriters to look out for. Let's turn this into a contrarian take. Why this popular copywriting formula doesn't work on LinkedIn, even though you think it should. Let's turn it into a present versus future. How copywriters succeed on LinkedIn today, but the game's changing. What will it look like in 10 years? It's just these same lenses that I push this newsletter topic through and out the end comes new content. The really great thing about having this sort of hub, the newsletter, and spoke all the different content that comes off of it is they're all interconnected. So when I share the story a week from now on LinkedIn, instead of saying, here's my story, I can say, here's my story. And if you want to learn more about this topic, go to my newsletter. I'll link to my newsletter and I'll de-platform thousands of people off of social media onto my website, or they can do things like subscribe to my newsletter, buy a course, sign up for coaching, sponsor my newsletter, or just learn more about me and go a little bit further down that funnel. So that is really how the system works. It's ideation, research, writing, editing, chopping, and distributing. So the ideating research is so important. I think like having a 10X idea, I think Mr. B said this, like having a 10X idea is better than just putting out random things and hoping they stick. Um, so I love the idea. So you get went through your process of a newsletter and breaking it down and how you think about writing it, but can we dive into like, how do you think about a great hook versus what the meat of the newsletter should say versus what are the call to action? Like, like how do you make it valuable? So, you know, the reader is going yeah. to get value out of this piece. Well, I try and keep all of the topics related to building a one person business. And so building a one person business generally has subtopics, right? growing an audience, efficiency and productivity, monetization, products, services, so on and so forth. So my goal is to write about the same topic or set of topics every single week. And then generally I'll use a pretty standard copywriting formula that I think resonates really deeply with people. It's a take on pain agitate solution. And it's one that I've sort of made up for lack of a better description called pain, amplification, intrigue, positive future, and solution. So I start with pain or problem. I introduce a problem that I know my audience has. So that might be not growing fast enough on social media, not able to monetize their business, feeling burnt out. I will introduce a problem. And because I've been in this industry for the last four years, I know most of the problems that my audience has because they share them with me on a regular basis. So I will introduce a problem. Most people writing on LinkedIn spend an hour putting together a piece of content, 30 minutes editing it, 15 minutes doing this, 10 minutes, they hit publish and they get crickets. That hurts, right? Pain, problem, whatever. Then generally, once I've introduced the pain, I'll amplify the pain. 
I'll twist the knife a little bit, make the pain hurt, make it a little bit existential. When you do that, you miss out on opportunities. You don't get invited to podcast. You can't build your business. You can't drive your career forward. You can't get attention. It's just existential, just twisting the knife, right? And then I'll use intrigue to set up the newsletter. What if I told you there was five tips that you could use that most people don't use on LinkedIn to write faster content, better content, more predictably and at scale? Well, that's intriguing, right? So pain, agitate, intrigue, positive future, describe someone's positive future. By using these five tips, you will write content in 10 minutes, you'll 5X your engagement, you will land new opportunities, you will find yourself on a podcast, you will build your first business. This is the positive future. And then the solution is, here's how I would do it. So pain, agitate, intrigue, positive future solution. That's how my newsletters go. And that way you naturally get human psychology and emotion to take them from top to bottom. Most of my writing is psychological versus just throwing shit on paper and hoping that people find it interesting. Different platforms have different things. So like newsletter has one format that works. LinkedIn has, you have to do a different type of format. Twitter has a different. One thing that a lot of people do is they'll take a newsletter and they'll copy paste insert insert yeah. instead of like formatting it for so how do you think about the formatting of like i'm now i'm going to chop up this newsletter to make 18 different pieces of content i think it's just being cognizant so i'll tell you a trick that i learned that's been super helpful that we skip because we're not being cognizant we're moving so fast we're going so quickly that we don't stop to do this so generally I'll use my copywriting formula, P-A-I-P-S, when writing a newsletter. When it comes to LinkedIn and Twitter, I do a few things. Being cognizant is the first one, which means when I'm scrolling through Twitter and when I'm scrolling through LinkedIn, most people see a great piece of content, stop, read it, comment on it, and then move on. Me, I stop. And then before I read it, I say, why did I stop? Like what made me stop on this piece of content right here before I actually read it? And so I'll look through it and say like, was it the first line? Was it something the person said in the second line? Was it a specific word? Was it a number that caught my attention? Was it a combo of words and numbers? Was it a big number? Like there are so many different ways or reasons that we stop to read something. And so I think training yourself to be cognizant of why you stopped is the first thing that you can do to start getting better at writing for each individual platform. The second thing to do is just to understand simply how humans make decisions. So for example, a tweet thread is a string of many tweets put together. I would argue that the body doesn't matter. I would argue that mostly the opening tweet matters. If you can land a really solid opening tweet, you can get people to commit to the rest of the tweet thread, right? Now, I recommend you make it a good one and not a shitty one once you've gotten them to stop, right? But the first tweet is most important. LinkedIn, the lines above the fold are most important. If you can get someone to click the see more button, they have effectively committed to reading that piece of content. So therefore, you have to think about how do I become compelling above the fold? And once you figure out how to be compelling above the fold, you look and see other opportunities where you can just incrementally improve what you write. I like a first line to punch you in the face. I think that comes from Sean Purry is the, the person I think who, who first said that, but it's like really powerful, impactful first line generally gets people to, to stop. 
empathy or context in the second line, a hook line before the see more. How do I get someone tease them like a radio teaser to get them to click that see more button? Most of this is just diligence, studying, paying attention, and caring about getting incrementally better over time. The one thing that people miss all the time is they think that the whole piece of content, they should spend the same amount of time on each spin. But what you're saying is you iterate so much on the first three lines or the hook on for at least social, because the number one thing on social is first, like, can I get someone to stop scrolling? Second, mm-hmm. do I, can, does it get detention? Third, like, could I get them to keep staying on my post so I can read more? And then the last is like, after they've seen more, like, can I make them do an action to what you're trying to do is take them off the platform and, get your newsletter course, whatever like that. So I think people forget. This is one thing that people miss also is that is studying human psychology. I think what you've done and nailed with your content is everything comes down to how do I make a human have a sort of emotion to my piece of content, whether it's entertainment, education, or like a sense of like annoyance or a sense of pain or something like that. Yeah. Belonging pain, education, entertainment, empathy. These are all things that human beings relate to and react to. That's why I see so many people on LinkedIn and Twitter being like, just stop by this restaurant. They have the best egg sandwich. It's like, nobody gives a shit. Sorry. Platitudes don't matter. Your personal life is less interesting to people than you think it is. What I try and do with each piece of content is elicit a positive or sometimes a polarizing sensation. I don't like to make people upset. My goal isn't to be divisive, cruel, angry, shitty, nasty, mean. It is to get people to think. And no matter how hard you try, no one's ever going to like you. The whole crowd's never going to like you anyways. So you might as well say something that you believe with intention and try and elicit emotional response. The one question someone asks is they... They have two distinct audiences, leadership, consulting clients, and corporate professionals that want to become solopreneurs. How should they address both audiences with the LinkedIn content? And how do you pick one in your opinion? It's the most common question I get. And there's a million different answers from different people. So here's how I think about it. It doesn't make it right. But I have lots of interest too. We all have lots of interest. I like craft beer a lot, but it has nothing to do with solopreneurship. So I generally don't talk about it on LinkedIn, but I might think about it as concentric circles. Think about starting with the thing that is smallest, tightest, and most niche. So the thing that you can really go deeply, become an expert in, resonate with at a very, very deep level with a smaller audience. As you grow your audience and you grow your expertise and authority inside of that small circle, I would think about how can you sort of put around that circle larger and larger circles that capture more and more of your interests. If you can start small, get known really, really, really well for something in particular, grow an audience of 100,000 followers or fans, it's much easier to start going a little bit wider. It's much more difficult to be like, Monday, I talk about leadership consulting. Tuesday, I talk about fintech. Wednesday, I say something about government. You're never, ever going to sort of get the traction. It's best to go very deep in one, get traction in one, and then expand 
as the topics naturally fit together. What are your thoughts on engagement pods? Do you think it's cheating? What are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, each, pl- each platform. I mean, like Twitter yeah. has a different view than LinkedIn versus yeah. any other. So Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty transparent about it. So I grew to 300,000 LinkedIn followers where I'm at now without ever, ever being in a pod, ever. Not a single one. I grew to about 70,000 followers on Twitter. People on Twitter started reaching out and saying like, hey man, let's jump on a Zoom call. Or, hey man, can we trade a like for a like? And when people reach out and say like, can we trade things? The answer is always no. For me, if someone reaches out and says, hey, see your content, I've got a huge following too. We should get to know each other. We get to know each other. We form a friendship. We form a business relationship. And because of that relationship and friendship, you start to naturally support each other, right? A perfect example for me is Austin Belsack. Austin and I met four years ago on LinkedIn. I've never met him in person. And we just started sharing eBooks. We did a craft beer trade. Uh, I wrote him a recommendation. He wrote me one. I introduced him to a client. He did the same for me. And now we support each other's content every day. It's not a pod. He's my friend. And like I built that relationship the same way I'm building a relationship with Daniel. What I would suggest is stay away from pods. It's false engagement. It's not the right person. It's not the right customer. And instead, build real solid, meaningful relationships with other creators that are growing like you. And as you all grow together and you all hit milestones, you'll be able to celebrate and support each other's wins naturally versus making it feel forced. I think that's a great way to put it. I think there's just sending out your post and saying, hey, everybody like it is different than hey, I launched something, like you built a relationship and you said to this person, hey, I launched something cool, like this thread that might, you might think is actually valuable for yourself and your business. Like you want to take a look and then like if they take a look and then they engage with it because they thought it was cool, then it's good. It's like you're not asking for it. You're just more like saying, hey, I want to share something that's valuable to you. Um, yeah. But I also think the the relationship part is key. Like, for me, I did the same thing. Like, I naturally just like people's content that I've built friendships with. Like, I don't really, like, I don't even think about it. Like, I'll be like, oh, that this person I'm a friend with, I like their content. Or this person, a friend with, I like their content because I just like it. I think that's, like, the the way to do, to do it. But I like the how you put it. as like, build a relationship first. And it also, the engagement pod a lot of times, most of those people aren't in your niche, like 98% of those never. are in yeah. your niche. And you're basically building an audience of mixed opinions, mixed niches, and you, you're not going to be able to find your raving fans by doing that. I'll add one more thing. There's like there's two guys whose names are very similar, Dan Coe and Dan Go. Dan Coe invited me onto his podcast on Twitter called Modern Mastery. And I thought he was a really intelligent guy. And ever since that, he also showed me how to like use Instagram more effectively. And then I showed him the contents and like, we just traded secrets, you know? And so I started supporting his content. Dan Go found out I had back surgery. He's like a fitness guy. And he's like, Hey man, he sent me over like these exercises for doing for guys who had back surgery and can't lift a lot. And I was like, Oh, that's super cool. And then like, I just started making a friendship with him and supporting his content. That's how it starts versus like, 
let's all get the same 219 people to like this post. And yay, I got a lot of likes, but I didn't land any customers kind of stuff. Is like a paid community considered a pod? So they say you have a community of like your solopreneurs and you send out your piece of content, then is that considered a pod? I don't know. I'm, I'm not really sure. I'm not like I'm not like the master of definitions or, or um, yeah. you know, what things are. But like I had a paid community for a while. I think a lot of folks in that community would like share their content with each other. It was my community, so my goal wasn't to like leverage my own community to get people to like my own content. I think that would be kind of a shitty way to manage it. So I think there was some like, hey, let's get to know each other and support each other's content stuff going on. But like not as a community owner. I, I think that's disingenuous. So building your concentric social influence, how do you recommend one go about identifying a niche, smallest type focus when you are multifaceted in value you are seeking to drive? I think we're all multifaceted and all have valuable things to add. What makes a difference is there are obvious problems in the world and most people bring obvious solutions. So like I'll ask people, who do you help and, and how do you help them? I help small businesses grow. Small businesses like a plumber or small businesses like a SaaS company or small businesses like a flower shop. They're all very, very different. And so if someone came to you and said, hey, I'm looking for someone to help small businesses grow, well, you and a thousand other people are going to say the same thing. There's no difference. There's no differentiator for you. But if you're like, I work with flower shops doing six figures in revenue to help bring them past seven figures using email marketing. If there's a flower shop that wants to go from six figures to seven figures, all you have to do is convince them that email marketing is the way to do it. And you are the probably the only person in that niche. So you have no competition. I try and think of first figuring out how can I be the only and then the next thing I try and figure out is how can I bring a non-obvious solution to an obvious problem? So what I mean by that is everybody in this space is like, okay, uh, we do Facebook ads for SaaS companies to help them grow. That's an agency pitch often. Work with our agency. We'll do Facebook ads and Google ads for your SaaS company to grow. Okay. Why you? What makes you different? How are you different from a thousand other agencies saying the exact same things? You all have the same one sheeters. You all have case studies. And it's a race to the bottom on price because you're essentially a commodity. So instead, it's like leveraging an interesting or unique framework. Somebody like Chris Walker is a perfect example. He talks about marketing and SaaS companies, but he does it from a more non-obvious solution. He says things like dark social is where everything's at. All your marketing teams are doing things the wrong way. This is the, way, the right way for 2023. He is one of a very few people saying something completely different, completely non-obvious. So start by saying, how can I niche down so that I'm close to the only or one of five or one of 10 people? And then how do I bring a non-obvious solution to the table so that I don't sound like the other four, five, six, nine people that I'm competing with? If you can do an intersection of those two things, you can have a non-competitive brand. You're the one, you're the only, and you win that way. As you grow over time, you can start to bring some more of those interests in because you've already built a significant audience and you have an audience of fans. 
And the more fans you have, the more likely they are to say, well, I started following Dave for this one particular reason, and now he's branching out a little bit, but I like him. I've been following him for years, so I'm going to follow him down this journey as well. So it's less about being multifaceted, and it's more about being patient, starting with one, expanding to others over time. It's so much easier to, what we talked about at the beginning, is focus on one I like to call it like the way I phrase it is like an inevitable truth that I can lean on that I truly believe. And an inevitable truth can change. You can have changing opinions as you grow in your career and stuff like that. But if you anchor on something that you believe is so strongly in the market, you can then write so much about it. Like one of my inevitable truths that I like to anchor on is like B2B social really sucks. And then like, when I think about that, like, how could I, how could we be better as a B2B social person? And then I, I could write a lot of things about just anchoring myself on like the truth that I think they suck. Like some people think it's good. Some people don't, but I just think most suck. So I, I write about that, write about that in my newsletter and stuff. like Yeah. That. So. Like using myself as an example, I could talk about entrepreneurship. That's what I think is generally my theme is like entrepreneurship, building your own business, but there's. 50 million entrepreneurs. How do I stand out? So I went from entrepreneur to solopreneur, one person business, no employees. You're starting to see that phrase online a lot more often now that I talked about that for a year, but not just solopreneurship, diversified solopreneurship. So a solopreneur who doesn't go big or go home, who doesn't go for go hard on one revenue stream, who doesn't build one business, I am a diversified solopreneur building five different streams of revenue toward 5 million in recurring revenue. That is like a very specific phrase, statement, goal, way I operate my business. And so if somebody feels like that's the way, the route that they want to go, I'm one of a very few options for those people to follow and, and get information from. So that seemed like a better move than just like talking about entrepreneurship. I also think like now you can attach yourself to like one niche instead of saying like they say oh justin equals solopreneur instead of justin equals entrepreneur which like there's millions like you just said millions but now like someone could be like okay when i think solopreneurship or one person businesses i think justin walsh not when i think entrepreneurship which is everybody had to, yeah. everybody <laughs> had that on everybody had that, that on their profile for about most people have that on profile when they just are building something. So it's like focusing on building that by yourself is way easier to, and you even niche down a little bit more too, because like you niche down from solopreneur, but also like how could I create a solopreneur on the internet and create products on the internet? So that's even, that's like niche, even niche now. So like you took solopreneur to like, cause they are one person businesses that like service businesses that are doing like consulting you'd niche it down to like, how do I build it at scale on the internet? You gave so, it a different name, named it and claimed it. It's kind of what the, you claimed name, but it's also kind of like what Drift did back in the day and stuff like that. You claimed a category and like, you just like become known for that category instead of being known for, Drift could have been known for chatbots, but instead yeah. they were like conversational marketing, which is yeah. like more specific for chatbots. Um, yeah, totally. What is the right way to set up the ask? One thing that's hard is like you create value, but you also want to, you're creating a business for revenue. So like, how do you set up that ask in a way that doesn't feel like I'm using my audience or 
I'm asking too much for them. I don't really ask very often in the traditional sense. To me, it's more like a numbers game. Let's start by thinking about how people make decisions. So the first way that people make decisions is um, they start to be aware that you exist. No one's going to buy my stuff if they don't know that I exist. So part of what I want to do is be discovered. And so the first thing I try and do is get discovered by as many people as possible. And the easiest way to get discovered is to create social content. So I create two tweets a day, two LinkedIn posts a day, all that stuff. And that is really about discovery. Once people discover who I am and what I'm all about, there are products and solutions they can buy from me. I don't expect that they buy them right away. Instead, it's my job as the business owner to move from being discovered to generating a significant amount of trust with each person who discovers me. So while my content acts as discovery channel, my longer form newsletter, free guides, articles, blog posts, that establishes trust. My goal is to take them from discovery to trust. And I do that by moving them from social media platforms to my website where they can read how I think, my strategies, my tactics, just me, my brain in a longer form, right? You can't do, you can't say much on Twitter or LinkedIn. You can go much deeper on an article, newsletter, or blog post. So I move them from discovery to trust. And then at the end, I use pricing that makes it an impulse buy. Meaning if you discover me, you trust me, and you want to solve a problem that I, one of my products or services solve, I price them in an effective way where you can get started with very little friction. I don't offer a $2,000 masterclass. I don't have a $4,997 coaching program. I have $150 courses. So if you discover me, my content about solopreneurship and content creation, you go and read all my free guides and you think, hey, I trust this guy. He knows what he's talking about. And trust is like trust in my expertise. Then I position my products at the end very passively. I just say like, if you have one of these three problems, grab one of these courses for $150 and start solving that problem today. And that's as easy as I make it versus, hey everyone, buy my course. I also love what you said about taking someone from giving them a taste of your content, which is just like an appetizer to like, the full course of, of your content. And I think everybody has a different goal of social media. That's why it's hard. But I think one of the biggest goals is like, for at least like for like media companies, which is kind of what you're setting up for yourself. is like, how do I grab attention on social media so I can bring them to other, like your number one goal is like, how can I get the most attention so I can take more people off the platform to show them more of my expertise. But some people don't have that, extra stuff to show like that's how i think about it too now because i have a newsletter and social media is a way for me to say here's a little taste of what yes. i have and like if you want to read more i have long form content on my newsletter i have a podcast you can listen to but social media doesn't let me share all that stuff and you wouldn't even read all that stuff on social media so just come subscribe to my newsletter um i think there's also a question here that's just like if you if we send a newsletter what do you think about posting the same content as a LinkedIn newsletter? It's a great question. I haven't done it yet. I have 60,000 or so LinkedIn newsletter subscribers. I'm still figuring out how to use that functionality most appropriately in my model. 
part of my mantra is like meet, meet people where they are. If people read your stuff on LinkedIn, then sure, drop it into a LinkedIn newsletter. If people tend to read your stuff more through email, drop it in the email, email newsletter. If people come to your website and read stuff, put it as an article on your website. My thing is I'll probably start sharing my newsletter as a LinkedIn newsletter, as well as an email, as well as on my website. I'm not trying to barter. I'm not like, you better give me your email address or you can't have any of this stuff because that's not a great experience. My thought process is if you like LinkedIn, it'll be there. If you like my website, it'll be there. If you want to sign up to get the newsletter and your email, it'll be there. Hopefully I add enough value over the course of time where people are like, this is one of a few people that I want to give my email address to. And so far, you know, I started my newsletter 10 months ago. I've got 53,000 newsletter subscribers. Like I'm sure there are plenty of people who read it, who never give me their email address. They just go to my website every Saturday morning. Who cares? Still read it, right? Like they still, it still serves a purpose. And so to me, it's much more like be where your audience is, regardless of where they play. That's why I have this thing about education is like education should be consumed the way people want to consume it, whether it's long written word, short written word, audio, video, guides, courses. It shouldn't be just like, okay, this is the only way I do education is a newsletter. If you don't come to my newsletter, you're going to get that. It's like, the, the modern way of doing things is like, like it's okay if you don't get an extra 5,000 newsletter subscribers. It's okay. You'll survive. The more important thing is the long game in building trust with those people who become raving fans at the end of the day. Uh, totally. Like, I'll give you an example. I'm thinking about starting a podcast where I literally read the news. There are some people who don't want to read what I write. They might want to listen to it instead. Some people might want to watch it. So like if I could start a podcast and simply read my newsletter and add a little bit of extra context or a story that resonates or bring a guest on to talk about the specific topic, like, yeah, it'll be similar to the newsletter content, but in a different form where different people consume it, it will be another message that I've reiterated time and time and time again so that it starts to stick in people's minds. Like, don't worry about like, if I put this newsletter on my website or on my email list, should I also do this? In the end, Daniel and I could talk about it for 30 minutes. The best thing to do is test it out. Go try it out and see what happens. And if it's a bad thing, stop doing it. If it's good, keep doing it. Yeah, I also think one thing that you said that's super important is just meet what, what your audience likes to consume the most. Do that. And the only way to figure out how to do that is try it. Like it. Your, your audience might want to. And also what, one thing to note about like podcasts versus newsletter, what I've noticed is like, sometimes there's not that much crossover between my like newsletter audience and my podcast, which is pretty interesting to think about because it's like, like, cause that just proves that like only a few people who like, like listening and podcasts want to read newsletters and vice versa. Like the crossover is not like as high as people think. That's why it's so valuable to create in different formats because some people actually just want to listen to content while they're walking on the treadmill or going out. But some people like, writing down, sitting down, looking at Justin's newsletter, taking notes, like, how do I do it? And some people want to go to a course where it's like, I want a step-by-step way to do this. I need it all in one place. I need it all at one time. And this is how I do it. So I think that's so important to think about when you're creating content and creating a system for it. And and the, the content system that I was discussing earlier, 
I've discussed it with you. I've discussed it with Dan Coe. I've discussed it with Dan Go. I've walked through it on Ship 30 for 30 podcast. I've written a newsletter about it. I've written two LinkedIn posts about it, a tweet thread about it. I've literally gone over it 30 times. And tomorrow, somebody will write me a message on a platform and say, I've been following you for a year. I've never seen this. This is so cool. And it's like, just because you feel as though you're repeating your message in different channels over and over and over again does not mean that your audience is consuming that or getting sick of it or getting annoyed by it. So um, I highly recommend continuing to try things like that. Also, something I realized, which is funny, which has had grounded me when I is just like people forget what you posted a day ago. The fact that you think that people remember is just like something in your own personal like ego that you think your content is that great but like people's attention spans are so like i remember justin's content like things in justin's content but i can't remember if it's something he posted a week ago or i heard it on his podcast or i heard him talking face to face but i know the general principles as he's told me but i can't recall that it was his number 54th newsletter that i heard it on or was like a linkedin post it was like i don't remember and that's like what people don't forget it's like you could repeat yourself and I've repeated posts multiple times and people, I get even more engagement and I, it's the same exact post as I, I, I said before, maybe I tweaked it a little bit, but it's the same exact post as I posted a month ago or like I do it even two weeks ago. Yeah. My, um, my wife said something to me yesterday. I had posted something like three days ago. She's like, I really like this. This is like a really good post of yours. She's like really good. And I, was like, I wrote it like last year and you saw it. You read it last year. You're my wife and you don't remember it. So that's a good sign. <laughs> I love it. One, a couple more questions and then we could get off this. But also, I just want to say everybody go subscribe to Justice News that I'm giving the recommendation to this. If you want to learn about content systems, his course is amazing. I'm hyping you up because I just think he's one of the best uh, content there. And also, he just got ranked as the number one LinkedIn influencer. Uh, yesterday, so um, that means. <laughs> um, but I have a, a couple more questions. Though one is, do you have any tips for coming up with a like a unique selling point when you target small businesses in a specific small town? Like we've tried going after specific verticals, but being in a small town makes it a little more difficult. Like in a small town. Like the customer base, I guess, is only in the small town. Yeah, well. I think the yeah the small businesses are in a small town. Yeah. This may come across as slightly disingenuous, but I think it's the how sales and marketing works, which is you have to look at all the different folks that serve your market and look for the commonalities in their unique selling proposition. Here's my guess. They're not unique, right? I would bet that whatever business you're in, you could go look at your four or five largest competitors and find that their messaging, their features, their benefits, their website, their resources are all pretty similar. What you have to do is you have to create existential pain and you have to create a non-obvious unique solution. So kind of like we talked about earlier, you have to show the business that you understand their problem or their problems better than your competitors. So you need to do extremely good diligence and intel on what those problems are. You have to be able to articulate their problems as though you're inside of their head. They should say back to you like, man, you must be in my head because that's exactly how I'm feeling about XYZ business, right? You have to be able to do that. Then you have to actually share and say, most companies like mine will tell you 
the way to solve that problem is A, B, C, and D. And you articulate all the non-unique selling propositions that your competitors have. Hey, Mr. Smith or Mrs. Smith, you've probably heard from four other companies like mine that the best thing to do is A, B, C, and D. We don't think those are the best things to do. We think that the game is changing. Things are becoming more modern. The way that people are making decisions are different. So we go through a slightly different process that we believe will future-proof your business in Washington Courthouse, Ohio, small town, right? Here's how we're looking at businesses locally here. Here's the audit that we're running. Here's how it's different than our competitors. Here's why it's different than our competitors. And using that audit outcome process analysis, whatever word you want to use, right? We actually put together a custom strategy that's very, very different than what the common business in our industry will recommend. Here's why. Here's our prices. If I articulated your problems as good as you said I did, does it make sense for you to look and see how our solutions work with businesses like yours? To me, that's just a slightly different take on, hey, I know you have problems and we do the same thing as every other business in this small town, but our prices are better. Our service is better. We've been around longer. Nobody cares about that stuff. They care that you can solve their problems in the end. I've never actually thought of it like that, but I think you you also articulate what you do in your writing what you do in sales, which is great. Cause I think like the non-obvious stuff that like people, like obviously this company give, does email marketing for you. Obviously you could send emails out of this. Obviously you could do this, but then you could say like, but this is how we differentiate yourself. I think it's like setting up like, yeah, I know this is what you're looking for, but I want to show you how we're different. How could you companies leverage more from LinkedIn business pages to promote their offering, especially than the enterprise space? I could take a LinkedIn page quick, quickly and then you could go. But I think for me, the way I think and Justin might have, the way I think about LinkedIn pages is the first thing you got to remove is like your offering for enterprise base and think about how could I just be the best page for your customer base yeah. and whoever your customer is, if it's plumbers, if it's marketers, if it's salespeople, be the best resource in the space for that thing. And that's what your LinkedIn page should be. It should not be about anything about your offering. I don't. People don't care about your offering. They just want to create value. And that's what Justin's done with his content and people buy is you just create great content for them. And then they will see you as a trusted expert source. And then they would want to buy for you. I think it's being an incredible resource in your industry. The way that company business, uh, with a company pages, and, and by the way, you're obviously the company page guy, right? You got 400,000 company page followers. I've got 12,000. So like, you know what you're doing. But what I would say is be an industry expert. Don't make it about yourself and actually shine a light on other people in your industry. I think Daniel does a really good job on that using marketing millennials. He spends a lot of time like shining that light on other people. And therefore, those people give his page love in return. It becomes a trusted resource. It becomes a page they go to frequently. I think that is a very business savvy way to tackle a company page. Whereas your personal page is more about personal opinions, talking about things that are interesting and relevant, being educational, step-by-step, instructional, teaching people two to three steps behind you on the journey. If you can kind of mesh those two things together, where one is like a ton of opinions on how to do things really well based on uh, experience. And the other one is like industry resources, best practices, and shining a light on other people who are top performers in your industry. I think that's a really good, like blended strategy for, for using LinkedIn. I'm not, I don't use the company page as effectively as, as Daniel. So 
uh, you know, listen to him. <laughs> yeah, I think also he he has so many other channels he's on to focus on, so he'll probably nail it in a second. But thank you so much for coming. I just wanted to let you know, like, go follow him on every channel. He's he, but the main channel is crushing Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want to see how to do content strategy in the system, just look and reverse engineer what Justin's doing and you'll nail the process. And his newsletter is awesome, obviously. But thank you so much for being here. Cool. Thanks, everyone. Daniel, thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next week to hear more great insights from marketing's coolest operators. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the Marketing Millennials podcast and giving it a five-star rating. It helps bring more marketers into our community.